today we're going to be primarily in two different texts. So I want to go ahead and let you know what those are. We're going to be in Romans 12, uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and then 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 12. So go ahead and mark both of those places in your Bible. And while you're going there, let me recap where we have been the last few weeks. As mentioned before, we've been going through a series called Renewed for Mission. And you can think of this series kind of like a funnel, okay? We started big by looking at the thread of the mission of God from Genesis to Revelation that we see in every book, every story, every character of the Bible, that God is moving the pieces to display his glory among all nations. And God has invited his people to be a part of that plan, to join him in that mission. And then in week two, we asked the question, okay, if our aim is to display the glory of God, then what is our fuel for that? What's our motivation for that? And the thing that moves us, the thing that moves, motivates us, the thing that moves us from boredom to passion, from apathy to purpose, is worship. It's the glory of God. That's the only thing that motivates us. Then in week three, we looked at God's call to make disciples of all nations. So that word nation, it means ethne. So ethnic groups. So go and make disciples of every ethnic group or people group. In the world today, there are thousands of people groups who have never heard the name of Jesus. And Jesus has tasked his church with going and sending those to the far places of the earth to proclaim that gospel. Then last week, we moved to more of the practical of God's mission, that joining in on the mission of God begins with being transformed. It begins with changing our rhythm of life, that our rhythm would match God's rhythm. And we ask questions like, do we live for the glory of God? Do we live to give people a glimpse of gospel community? Do we live as redeemed people? Do we join God in his fight against the injustice of sin? Do we act as if we are sent out by God. And today, we're making the funnel even smaller, okay? Um, that the reality is, if we are going to live in these rhythms that in God's mission, then we will have opposition to that mission. That's a reality. If you are going to follow Christ in this world, then you have to understand that you are set apart for a purpose. And in that being set apart, you will have opposition. So, how do we, as the people of God, one, resist the temptations of the world that would want to pull us away from God, and two, how do we love a world that would set itself against us? How do we engage the world for the glory of God? So that's where we're going today. Let me read those two texts for you, Romans 12, 1 and 2, and 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Romans says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then 1 Peter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I want to start 
In 1 Peter 2, 11, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So Peter refers to these believers that he is writing to as sojourners. A sojourner is a person who resides temporarily in a place. So they live temporarily in a place. And this is just as true for us as it was for them 2,000 years ago, that we live in this in-between time, between the incarnation and death of Christ, that Jesus has come, put on flesh, died, risen from the grave, and ascended to heaven, but he has promised to come back to make all things new. And in this in-between time, he has tasked us to be ambassadors to a fallen world, that we would be light to the darkness, that as his disciples in the world, we would make disciples. And Peter reminds these believers that this place is temporary. I think we forget that. This place is temporary. This place is not your home. This place is not where we belong. But that in this place, there is a battle happening before us, right in front of us. He says, there are passions in your flesh that are driven by the world and its ways wage war against your soul. Think about that. Like, don't just skip. Wage war against your soul. That's pretty heavy language. Wage war. Your soul is in danger of being destroyed. Your soul is in danger of being destroyed. There are passions, desires, thoughts, ways in which the world is working to destroy your soul. And if you really think about this, you know this. When you watch TV, when you stream online, when you scroll through social media, there, think about it. There are so few things that you can entertain yourself with that practically are designed to nourish your heart for God, right? They're not designed to do that. The, the developers for your phone, the engineers behind Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok are not thinking, how can I nurture people's passion for God? Whatever news outlet you watch has an agenda, and I'm not talking about a political agenda. I'm talking about a spiritual agenda to tell you what is good in the world and what is evil in the world. And most of the time, that does not match up with what God's word says. There is a war waging in this world for our souls. And so the first thing I would say to us before we talk about anything is, is don't be foolish. We have to acknowledge this. The world is not neutral. It's not that this world is inundating you with messages every moment of every day, all week long, saying that money, acclaim, entertainment, sex, drink, drugs, and success are what you need. Don't buy it. There is a battle. The word that God uses is war. It's pretty drastic language, and it's waging every moment in this world to pull you away from God, to pull you away from his Word. That's why he says in Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but what? Forfeits his soul. Did you hear that? Your soul can be lost. And when the soul is lost, there's no way to get it back. When the war for your soul is lost, it's lost forever because our soul continues on after we die. So that means that you and I will either into everlasting joy with God or everlasting judgment with God. And you say, wait, 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 did you just say everlasting judgment? Yeah. Well, I thought God was loving. Yeah, he loves you so much that although you and I deserve judgment before him because of our sin against him, that instead he sent his son to die on the cross to pay 
for our sins, to endure the judgment that we deserved. So when you trust in Jesus to save you from your sin, to save your soul, God will forgive you all your sin and your eternal life with him, that God loves you so much that he has brought you, literally, at this moment to hear this reality, that your soul can be saved. And so before we talk about anything else, you need to ask the question, do I belong to Jesus? Have I fully surrendered to him? Is he worthy of my worship? Do I fully trust him? Because at the end of the day, that is all that's going to matter. It's not going to matter how much money you've made, how people think of you, or anything else. It's going to matter if you trust in Jesus. That will be all that matters. But if you trust in Jesus, then you need to know that that will put you at odds with how the world thinks and how the world operates. You will be set apart, and you will be set apart for a purpose. And you have to know that this mission comes with opposition. It does. So here's the question. What does it look like to join God's mission in a world that opposes what we believe about Jesus? Because here's the reality. I mean, we can talk about social issues and how that puts us at odds with the world, but the reality is the gospel at its face value, the gospel for what it is, is offensive to the world. Like, it's obviously common for Christians today to be labeled insulting for things that they believe in in social issues, whether that's abortion or same-sex marriage. You can fill in the blank, but the insult doesn't start with the social issue. It starts with what we actually believe about God. And I want us to really understand this because I think we assume that, um, that this world is hard and it hates us because of what we believe about social justice. But it's not. The gospel at its core is offensive. So this is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that the just and gracious creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and women and sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to, for, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power in the resurrection. So that everyone, anyone who turns from their sin and themselves and trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord will be reconciled to God. And just by agreeing with that statement puts you at odds with the world. The gospel by itself is offensive, and it starts with the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God. Because from the very beginning, the Bible asserts that there is one God who is creator of all. It says that there is a God who created every one of us, which means we belong to him. It means that we are sustained by him. That as self-sufficient as we think we can be, we will never be sufficient enough in this life. We need God. Only God does that. We belong to him. We are sustained by him. And this is the part the world really doesn't like. We are accountable to him. You and I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. You and I will be accountable to God. You will answer to him one day. The God, the creator of all, he's holy above all, which means he's perfect in every way. He's without equal. He's without error. He's completely unlike us in his perfections, his purity, and his holiness, and he is just because of it. And he will judge us with perfect justice. So the beginning point, the stark reality of the gospel, is that there is a God who will judge every single person. There is a God who will judge you, and there is a God who will judge me, and that God will be just. Just sit back and think about the reality of the offense that's created there. 
Think about it. You tell any modern man or woman there is a God who sustains, owns, defines, rules, and one day will judge him or her, and that person is offended. And not only is God the supreme authority and judge, but us, you and I, we are fallen. We are not good in God's eyes without Christ. And that statement right there is offensive. To look at another human being and say, you know what, just by being born, you have offended God. You are far away from God. That the reality is we've turned away from God and we stand guilty before him. Now, those two realities, these realities set up the ultimate problem in the universe. How can a just God save rebellious sinners who are due his judgment? How can that happen? Uh, Proverbs 17, 15, it says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Did you catch that? It's kind of a wordy verse. So God detests those who calls the guilty innocent, and he detests those who calls the innocent guilty because he's just. He's a good judge. He calls the innocent innocent and the guilty guilty. So when God comes to you as a good judge, what will he say to you? Without Christ, what will he say? Inevitably, it will be guilty. Because if he were to say innocent, he would be an abomination to himself. And that's the problem. Every man and woman is guilty before God. So how can God express his justice without condemning every sinner in the world? In other words, how can God love us when his justice requires condemning us? It's a fundamental problem in the entire universe. And here's where it gets even more offensive. Most people in our culture are not losing sleep on how it's possible for God to be just and loving towards sinners at the same time. They don't know what that means. But instead, people are accusing God, saying, how can you even punish sinners? How can you even do that? How can you let good people go to hell? But the question of the Bible asks the exact opposite. God, how can you be just and let guilty sinners into heaven? And the only solution, the only solution, is Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And here's what's utterly unique about him. His life displayed the righteousness of God. He was fully man, human like us, and fully God, divine like God. And listen, in both his humanity and he, his deity, he is without sin. He's without it. He never rebelled against God, which means he as a human was innocent before God. He had no price to pay for sin and did not deserve death, yet he what? He died. And he died to satisfy the justice of God. He had no sin for which he deserved death, but he chose to take our place. And during the judgment, we deserve that at the cross, God expressed his judgment upon sin, but also at the cross, God showed his love for us. Jesus, fully human and fully divine, endured the judgment due sin, and in this way at the cross enabled us to be saved, that he died for you and me. And what this means is that God does not give us what justice deserves when we turn to him and trust him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. We did not save ourselves. The Bible says you are dead in your sins, and you cannot bring yourself 
back to life. Only the Spirit of God can do that. We cannot work our way to salvation. We will do, never do enough good. We, you will never do enough good deeds to save yourself. You won't. You don't have the tools to make yourself a Christian. It takes an act of grace of God for your eyes to be opened, to make you alive. And that is offensive. To tell someone you cannot save yourself, to tell someone you do not have the power to make things right with God, you need help. But then it goes on. After three days, Jesus rose from the grave. So his life displayed the righteousness of God. His death satisfied the justice of God. And his resurrection demonstrated the power of God. So the question, if the world is still listening at this point, if you laid all this out, is what do I do? What does this mean I have to do? What does God ask of us? Well, Acts 2.37, after they've heard the gospel, it says, they, when they heard this, they were cut to the hearts and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And the world does not like being told that they need to repent. You see how offensive that is? We don't like being told that we are wrong, that we need to change our life, that we need to say, I'm sorry. And so if you're still tracking with me after all that, and you believe in everything that I just said, if you believe in the true gospel, then you need to know two things. One, you are set apart. You're a part of a group. Not many people believe this, truly believe this. And two, the world will hate you for it. Jesus says, they hated me, and they will hate you. Because it's even more than that. This plays out in our rhythms of life, right? Believing in the gospel overflows to how and what you believe about the culture that operates us. That as followers of Jesus who believe the word of God, we have some very different views in the world around us. Some unpopular views, even offensive views that would be labeled evil in our culture. Think about it. If you believe in Genesis 1, 26, and 27, then you believe that God creates all people wonderfully and beautifully as either male or female. And this foundational truth from the first chapter of the Bible is labeled evil. It's labeled discriminatory, and it's labeled unloving in our culture. If you believe Genesis 2.24, then you believe that marriage is designed by God for one man and one woman. That's labeled bigotry. If you believe 1 Corinthians 6 or 1 Thessalonians 4, then you believe that any any sexual activity of any kind outside of marriage between one man and one woman is sin. If you believe Ephesians 5, then you believe that a husband is leader of the home, just as Jesus is leader of the church. If you believe in Psalm 139, you believe that abortion is the murder of an innocent life being formed in a mother's womb. And I could go on and on and on based on God's word. And I haven't even gotten to the really crazy stuff, to be honest. Like, think about it. We believe that a virgin gave birth to a baby. He grew up, never did one thing wrong his entire life. Then he died. Three days later, he walked out of the tomb, flew up to heaven. And one day, he's coming back on a horse. That's what we believe about Jesus. So let's just put our cards on the table for a second, right? If you trust God and you trust in his word, then you believe some things that are very different than the people around you. Things that could lead to mockery, insult, slander, and being ostracized in this world. 
things that the world might label as evil, unloving, harmful, and even dangerous. So how do we show the love of Christ to this world without compromising our faith and holiness by being like the world? It's a very tight tension, right? First thing, I have two points, that's it, just two. One, resist the world. And that might not mean what you think it means. That in light of the reality, there is a world that wages war against your soul. You must resist the world. First Peter 2.11, he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So you abstain, you, you, you resist them, you resist the passions and desires. And look, as I've studied this text this week, I've had some really hard moments as I've thought about this text in particular. Moments that, that really I began to pray for myself and for you because I believe there are people in our church and in our churches that who would profess to be Christian, but you're sleeping through the middle of the war, the war because you're still living for this world. You say that you're a believer, but you're not actually fighting the battle. You're enjoying the world. The, the world. It's like you for, we've forgotten sometimes that we don't belong here. It's like we've forgotten that we're exiles, that we're sojourners, that we don't live for what the advertisers are selling and what social media is offering. We don't live for things like pride, fame, money, sex, and success that this world issues as lures to keep us from Christ, that we're not on guard when we're watching things, when we're hearing things, when we're reading things, that we don't scroll through our phone mindlessly, allowing the world to sink in. We don't listen to the news or read mindlessly, that in community we guard our minds, we guard our thoughts, we guard our emotions. We don't think like the world thinks. We don't feel like the world feels. We don't desire what the world desires. We don't speak, men. We don't speak like the world speaks. We speak differently. We actually say the name of Jesus. We don't act like the world acts. Why? Because we're exiles here. We're living for a whole different world. And, and it, we have to really think, it's not like we're foreigners in a different country. It's like we're, we're from another planet. We literally don't live here. We live for another world altogether, a different world. And that changes everything. Let me read to you Romans 12 too. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this is how you do it. This is where it starts with resisting the world, and it's actually not that complicated. You are transformed by the Spirit of God. That word transformation, I love this. It's only used one other time in the Gospels, okay? One time in the Gospels, and it's used at the Mount of Transfiguration because that word transfiguration is literally the word transformation. And what, did ha what happened there? They come up the mountain, and what do they see? They see Jesus, and his face is shining like the sun. That there is a transformation that is added on the outside that's rooted on the inside. And here's what Romans 12.2 is teaching us, that the mind is the control center for transformation, that we are transformed on the outside but what happens by what happens on the mind's inside, that it doesn't start with a change of behavior. That's where not where transformation starts. It starts with a change of thinking. And what we've got to realize is that when we trust in Jesus, he not only gives us a new heart, because Christ changes the way that we think. And I believe that we've missed this. We don't talk about this much. 
because we have such a tendency to talk about Christ in terms of changing our hearts. But what's cool is when you look at Romans 12 too, that word transform, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, it's a present tense verb. What does that mean? Why, Colton, why do I care about this? It's a present tense verb, which means it's literally saying, keep on being transformed. That it's not an instantaneous thing where all of a sudden you think completely like you're set apart. But what happens is Christ continually transforms our minds to think like him, to love like him. So you question, okay, what, is, what does that look like practically? How do we do that? Well, 2 Corinthians 3.18 is helpful. He says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So that word beholding can mean to contemplate or consider. So how do you transform into the likeness of Christ? You transform into his likeness by seeing him, by perceiving him, by considering, and by contemplating his glory. And the more you fix your attention or your minds on the glory and sweetness of Christ, the more you look at him and say, yeah, he is better than anything else. The more you do that, the more he transforms you. We behold literally his glory, and it changes us. So it's not as simple. I think sometimes when we hear that, word, that phrase, resist the world or abstain, we kind of think of it as like, okay, that means I need to sit in my room, clench my fist, and just go, I will not sin today, I will not sin today, I will not sin today. That doesn't accomplish anything. What is resisting the world? It's the movement away from one thing and the movement towards something else. So if we're talking about the world, it's the movement of moving away from settling for something that's less and towards something that's better, something that's true. If you really want to resist the world, it's not as simple as saying, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this. But it's more of, I'm not going to do this because I have this. And this is so much better. That's what resisting the world is. Man, I tell you, if you are living for the world, you are settling because Jesus is objectively more enjoyable, more satisfying, and more dependable than the things of this world. So in order to fight this battle for our soul, we do not conform. We do not avoid. We do not settle, but rather we draw near to Christ. We behold literally his glory. And the second thing the Bible calls us to do in this world is to, <clears throat> sorry, is to love the world. Let me read to you one of the most astounding, mind-blowing texts in all of Scripture. Matthew 5, 43. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And I read that and I thought, man, that's like the last two years. It sounds like our world today. Love those who like you and hate those who dislike you. Love those who think like you, act like you, talk like you, but hate those who disagree with you. Man, on any social media post, you click on something where someone just shares a scripture verse, especially like on Twitter, and it is just, just post after post of just that person being bashed. You look at any political stance. You look at, at any opinion in the world that we are tempted to just love those who think like us. Love those who act like us. Love those who agree with us. But then, what does Jesus say in verse 44 in Matthew 5? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And listen, he says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. So think about it. The world is blinded, they're confused, and they're misguided. And our aim as being set apart is not to make those who are in sin feel less than us. That's the opposite of what we're supposed to do. We don't take a position of power. We don't hold their sin over them. We love sacrificially. That's our posture. So if you spend more time despising people in your mind, if you spend more time alienating them and despising them than you do praying for them or serving them, then you are already living for this world and you are already losing the battle. We are sojourners. We are exiles. We're set apart. That means we think, talk, and live differently. And I hope that we can hear this, particularly in a world where there is so much animosity towards people that disagree with us. And here's why this matters. Here's why. This is not my opinion. 1 Peter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That reference here, Gentiles, is a figurative way of saying those who are unbelievers, those who do not know God, that we are to show them there's a different way to live. There's a better way to live, that we love them by literally showing them the glory of God. So what do we do in this one urging one? Number one is to resist the world, that we abstain from the passions of the flesh. And the second thing is that we live with a different passion. We love those even when they don't love us back. Why? Because God loved you when you did not love him back. That's why. Everything we do now is filtered through a different passion, a passion for God in this world. So ask yourself, does the way that I'm spending my time, my money, does the way that I speak, does the way that I post, does the way that I work, does the way that I relate to my spouse, my kids, my family, my friends, my coworkers, do they reflect passion for the glory of God? Do my words, my postings, my relationships show passion for God and for his glory in this world? world. So listen, we resist the world on one hand, but also we engage the world on the other. We have to. We're called to. But you have to know that if you do that, and we see this in First Peter, if you do that, if you attempt to engage the world for the glory of God, that it will not be easy. Listen, he, he says, honor God with your conduct so that when, listen, when they speak against you as evildoers, this means that when you think, believe, desire, and live differently for this world with passion for God, you will be spoken against. So you should expect resistance when you talk about the gospel, when you let the gospel overflow into your life. You should expect resistance to that, but that should not deter you from loving them. It should not. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So the Bible is saying, live such honorable lives filled with good deeds that when others think those people are not loving, that your life actually tells a different story. Live so that when they attack and slander and speak against you, they will look at you and they see honor, they see integrity, they see the character of God, that it's not just your deeds that tell the story, but it's your words. You bring the conversation back to your faith and to the grace of Jesus so that 
when they evaluate your words, it's backed up by your actions. This is not, man, listen, this is not a passionless, emotionless, empty, hollow life. Like, come on. I think in the, in the church with Christians, we, we think, man, all right, well, I guess I'm just going to be a holy roller and just chill in life in church and have a bunch of social circles, and we're just going to hang out all the time, and, and I'm going to be bored because I never have fun. Are you kidding me? You don't really know Jesus then because he's so much better that when they think those people are closed-minded and arrogant, they see humility and kindness coupled with passion and conviction. And then he ends in verse 12. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and what? And glorify God on the day of visitation. That there will be a day, there will be a day when this battle will be won. That turmoil you feel in your soul, where you feel like the enemy is coming after you, and you feel like, man, there is just no way for me to get out. I feel a mess. I cannot find joy. I cannot see where God is. I cannot understand why God is doing the things that he's doing. I cannot understand why this hurts so much. If you feel that, you need to know there is a day when this battle will be won. This is promised. We are not sojourners who are unsure if we'll ever get home. It's not a question. Jesus has promised that he will return to make all things new. And so I want you to think about this for a second. When you think about heaven, in particular, the new heaven, the new earth, it's not just some otherworldly picture where we're all sitting on the clouds in the sky in some spirit world. The Bible pictures an earthly heaven, like, a, like this, an earthly heaven, a new earth, not unfamiliar or otherworldly, but familiar. So think about this. Heaven is not a foreign place where we're not sure what it's going to be like. Heaven is home because this place will be fully redeemed and fully made new. Because if we're honest, I think most of us, when we think about heaven, we think it's going to be boring. Man, what are we going to do? Just sing around and sing songs with each other for a quadrillion years? The answer Scripture gives is no. There's so much more to hope for in heaven. It's not an endless choir practice that we're going to. It's a place where we're going to experience the fulfillment of all our desires in a new and complete earth. So envision the hope, a place full of reconciliation with God, where we will be with him. Heaven is a place of comprehensive redemption of culture. Just imagine, think about it for a second. Imagine how all the good elements of this world all the good elements of creation will be totally restored by God. And all the good elements of culture and music and art will be redeemed, fully redeemed for the purposes of God. That we long for a new earth where we will exalt God's glory continually. Think about it this way. Think about your favorite moments in this life. Those moments, if you can think about them, where you say, man, I never want this to end. This is amazing. For some of you, maybe that's your wedding day. For some of you, maybe that's when your team won the championship, like when the Astros won, but then I found out they cheated. So, you know, that's a whole other thing. And so, but think about those moments where you're like, it's a movie. I never want this movie to end. But inevitably, what happens every time? That moment ends. 
And then you long to find that feeling again, right? I want to feel like that again. I want to feel loved like that. I want to be entertained and enjoy that. When heaven is here, when the new heaven and new earth is here, you will say, I want this to go on forever. And it will. That's what heaven will be like. There is no better news than this. But until then, what do we do? Because that's not here yet. We live with a height of confidence in the word before us. We trust him. We trust his word. Listen, the culture, the world, the way the world operates will come and go. It will change. But the word of God will stand forever. We also live with an abundance of compassion for the world around us, with the depth of the commitment to Christ above us. Remember what Jesus prayed to his father as he looked at the crowd as he was being crucified, as they were crucifying him? Do you remember what he prayed? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We live with an abundance of compassion, but also not compromising, because we look to him as better and more satisfying. So I pray that as you read the words of Jesus, you would see it. That as you look at the culture around us, you would see them with an eternal perspective. That we speak boldly to the culture. We speak boldly to the world, but we speak with the eternal perspective. And we live this life in reckless abandonment, laying down our lives for our comfort. And here's the other thing when it comes to us as the church. May mission in this world be more important to us than maintenance in our churches. We're not going to reach this world by maintaining what we have here. We reach this world by being sent out, by being uncomfortable, by encouraging and really being vulnerable and seeing lives transformed. So may we not be content with business as usual, comfortable, casual Christianity. That's not what you're going to find here. You're going to be challenged and pressed into that you may have to be vulnerable in ways that you have not been vulnerable. Because listen, man, they need to see a real, true gospel. The world needs to see real, transformed lives, not some kind of cheap, deluded version of it. They need to see Jesus. And Jesus has tasked us with showing them. He's tasked us. So we are a part of this mission. We are set apart. So we resist, not by avoiding, but by engaging the world. Trusting in him, trusting in his word. So may we resist the temptation of this world while also engaging this world with the rhythms of God.